Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Charbuk Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right, my guest today is Kunal. Kunal Singh uh, is, I think, right now a PhD doctoral uh, student. And today, interestingly, this is a new experiment on the Charbuk Podcast. We are going to discuss the PhD dissertation. Uh, obviously, Kunal had written the dissertation. It is called "Unmaking the Bomb: Strategies of Counterproliferation." Kunal, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Kushal, for having me. So, Kunal, this is your first time on the podcast. Uh, so, I'll request you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself, about your background, and then maybe we can take it forward from there. Great. Yeah. So, uh, as you have already said, that I, I'm a PhD candidate at uh, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I do security studies. So, there's a security studies program. I'm right now in my fourth year. So, the dissertation you are talking about is still in development. So, it's not final. um it will take some time so i am interested in mostly politics of nuclear weapons and south asian security and security issues in general all international security issues and uh, yeah before this i was back i was in india i was a journalist with hindustan times before that i was with mint i have worked at center for policy research and uh, and in previous life i was an engineer a materials engineer from iit kharagpur so that pretty much sums up ye iit kharagpur se journalism mein jaane ka zara raaz samjhayo ki kisi ko so the short answer there is a longer answer but the short answer is i was reminded of this uh, you know the urdu share of allama iqbal नो वतन की फिक्र कर अनादा मुसीबत आने वाली है तेरी बर्बादी के मशवरे आसमानों में ना समलोगे तो मिट जाओगे हिंदुस्तान वालों तुम्हारी दास्ता तक न रहेगी दास्तानों में सो यू नो गॉट इट गॉट इट दैट्स अ फेयर असेसमेंट सो कुनाल एक काम ऐसे करते हैं काउंटर प्रोलिफरेशन इज अ कॉम्प्लेक्स सब्जेक्ट मुझे भी आपकी जब यू नो यू शेयर योर डिसिटेशन यूर नाइस इनफ टू शेयर इट विद मी आई ट्राई टू रीड इट मुझे भी थोड़ा समय लगा वो कुछ टर्मिनोलॉजीज होती है वो बार बार जाके गूगल करना पड़ता है इस टर्मिनोलॉजी का अंतर मतलब क्या होता है मतलब सो इट्स ए कॉम्प्लेक्स सब्जेक्ट सो मे बी वी कैन स्टार्ट लाइक दिस कैन यू टेक अस बैक अ लिटिल बिट एंड लुक एट द हिस्ट्री एंड देन मे बी कम टू द करंट सीनेरियो और इन द लास्ट फ्यू ईयर्स का सीनेरियो मे बी यू कैन स्टार्ट विद द हिस्ट्री इट सेल्फ uh so history uh, i mean you mean history of theory building about nuclear weapons exactly yeah, yeah. how how did this theory building come up and wh- why did counter proliferation as an idea itself exist so uh, first of all counter proliferation as an idea exists because you know nuclear weapons are pretty important any new state which gets uh, acquires nuclear weapons becomes an important matter in international security and there are other states which do not want to that this club of nuclear countries increase for various reasons uh, there can be security reasons there can be prestige reasons that this is exclusive club let's maintain the prestige of that uh, exclusiveness so uh, but but thinking about why why i guess uh, nuclear going behind a little why nuclear weapons are special so, you know once first they get used in 1945 uh, at the end of the world war 2 and uh, after that actually people start theorizing about nuclear weapons what is it about it that makes it so special and you know uh, brody writes uh, a lot in that period then shelling comes in and there a lot of people theorizing about it brody says from now on you know militaries are not going to strategize about how to win a war but they are going to strategize about how to prevent a war because wars when they will happen will be very destructive because of nuclear weapons 
So, so the first thing that everybody knows and that becomes implicit in this statement is the scale of destruction. And just the sheer scale of destruction is huge. But, you know, even before uh, new, the new atom bomb was used in on Japan, a lot of destruction had already happened. So some people begin to ask, like, what, what is new about it? Destructions, uh, firebombing and everything, uh, you know, all of it was already happening. So the second thing is not just the scale, but the speed. You know, when a destruction, if like, if I have to strangulate someone uh, uh, for like one month, then there is a lot of time in those in one month for uh, you and me to come to a negotiating table and discuss it out. But the moment I press the button in an, in half an hour, this this goes boom. We don't have that time, so it's also not just the scale, but the speed at it which it gets the destruction happens. And the third thing, there are two more things that make nuclear weapons special. The third thing is the ease of deployment. You know. Even when I am losing a war, I'm at the brink of defeat, I can use it. So it's it, the deterrence works even then. So, you know, uh, that is the third thing. And the fourth thing, and which has the fourth one, which has become a little contested over time is there is no defense to nuclear weapons. So once, so I, I can cause massive destruction to you. I can cause it very rapidly. I can cause it at the moment of, you know, at the brink of my defeat. So I can use it then. Uh, and so, so if you sprung a surprise on me, a war which quickly leads to my defeat, I can still use it. And then fourth, and once I decide to use it, there's no defense that you have. So you will it will be devastating. So those four things are what, you know, and, you know, it's, you not find this for like like this clearly laid out in any paper or book it just takes a lot of you know shelling does some part of it jervis does so there are a lot of theorists who go into that and talk about what what makes a nuclear weapon special and the moment when when you realize this implication like what you know the devastating impact and and this will this just flows into other things. Now, any bargaining between a, two nuclear countries becomes suddenly very dif different from what used to happen in pre-nuclear era because there is this bomb that can be used. Bargaining during peacetime, bargaining during crisis times. So um, now people started thinking about it a little more. Some people said that, okay, you know, if I have nuclear superiority, I can use it to my bargaining advantage. Then others said, no, 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 it doesn't matter whether you have nuclear superiority. It just matters that whether you have a survivable arsenal. So the if just the parity of having like you have nukes, I have nukes that can survive the first strike. That's it. That that's good enough. So a lot of things then start to develop around you know. So it just goes into a, a, a whole whole host of uh, uh, theories and you know empirics after that on nuclear weapons. But so. Yeah. So I just have a question here, if you don't mind. So yeah. even it seems as if, you know, even in the history of the building of um, why nuclear weapons are and the reason behind nuclear weapons or what is loosely called the Mutually Assured Destruction Manifesto, even in that, there are not standard reasons to understand what MAD is all about. Yes, Um Yes. So if you look, if you look at the Cold War debates, uh, and it's actually very funny to read some of them. It's also, you know, um, they're talking about life and death in pretty casual manner. <laughs> so, um, 
so i think it was uh, robert mcinmara who was debating about what would it what would it mean to you know um comprehensively destroy another society so as to get adequate deterrence and he is talking about something like 50% of the industrial capacity of a state and so like something like 25% of the population and then other people say okay okay this is too much you know you 10 cities would be enough some people say it's like you know two cities are enough so uh, yes there is there is that controversy i shouldn't say controversy but that debate about you know what how much deterrence is enough how much of how, like what kind of destruction should you be able to cause before it you can say that okay you have mutually assured destruction so uh, i sh- i should actually use this opportunity to you know project something about what is recently happening in the field about mutually assured destruction so uh, this goes back to what uh, the big big shots in the field earlier robert jervis and kenneth wall said about theory of what they called theory of nuclear revolution it's also called nuclear optimism so what they said is just that you have small arsenal on both sides that's enough to deter each other it's you know it it's not about the certainty of hitting it's even the uncertainty of hitting your rival that will cause them to deter like even if there is a small chance that my cities will be pulverized i'll not take that chance and you know go to a war thinking that okay no 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 i can in my first strike i'll get rid of all of your weapons because even if there is a small chance that i leave some of them they they will be good enough to pulverize my cities so that that should be good enough a small arsenal is good a small arsenal is good to kick in all deterrent effects and then the implication that uh, they lay out is uh, uh, spectacular they say that you know super war, super war, uh, super powers will not go to war which to to the to this moment has held that has held so like soviet union and the us did not go to war for for the entirety of cold cold war there'll be crisis will be rare and now this will be this is contested some people say no the crisis wasn't rare uh, there were many cuban missile crisis and others where there were the ample amount of opportunities where uh, the other people say you know the nuclear war didn't happen but it was just out of luck it could have happened so uh, nuclear optimist said that you know crisis will be rare states will not be bargaining hard about it they'll they'll be ready to concede points because even if small opportunity that things escalate to a war and then a war to a nuclear war it will be so devastating that there nobody will go to war nobody will bargain hard uh, there should be even there should be no arms uh, race but that is the biggest challenge that they face because you know the soviet union and the us just went to arms race and they built like 50 15000 30000 nuclear weapons at their peak and uh, now now there's a new bunch of you know political scientists trying to figure out and explain why this happened so one of those things is you know nuclear this nuclear stalemate this mu- state of mutually assured destruction is not easy to attain and once you attain you can fall out of it so for example daryl press and keir lieber have this thing called the myth of nuclear revolution and brendan green says the revolution that failed so uh, they have these two new books um, which all came out i think last year or, or the year before that can you tell a little bit about this if you don't mind yes yes so uh, so da- so dalpresh and kilibert talk about you know basically uh, technology being you know uh, the key factor it's not just about two states that ha- both have nuclear weapons if the advanced and technologically advanced state can always hold 
the technologically weaker state at risk. So there are basically three things that they talk about. One is um, the satellite technology. So earlier, you know, he didn't know where the nuclear weapons are kept, where they are moving. So you could just solve the problem of locating of my nuclear weapons by moving it. Now satellites can keep a track of moving nuclear weapons every minute. And uh, if you have ample number of satellites, which the United States definitely does, it can keep track of, you know, for example, North Korea is geographically small. And uh, Tyrell Press and Key Labor, if I remember correctly, they say that 97% of the road network of North Korea is under US satellite uh, surveillance for all the time. So which means that they can pretty much see where the nukes are moving if they're moving. So, uh, so first is the satellite. So basically the hiding aspect is gone. It's complete transparency. Second is the accuracy revolution. So earlier the missiles that you hit uh, were not accurate, but they need not be accurate because you're hitting a city goes from, from one locality to another locality doesn't matter. But when you have to hit the arsenal of another country, they need to be accurate. They need to go and hit the exact place where the arsenal is kept. So the accuracy revolution has now, now the missiles are super accurate. So that's accuracy. So now you can track where they are and hit where they are. And the third thing now, and this is the, this is another paper of mine, but which you and we are not discussing today, but I'll just briefly touch is the uh, submarines. Now the nuclear submarines are supposed to be the last resort, the very last defense. Like, okay, you can track my land missiles. You can hit them. You can track my aircrafts on which I'll be loading my missiles. Those aircraft will be kept in certain hangars. You can maybe eliminate them. Maybe I'll shelter them, but you, if you have bunker buster bombs or you can uh, highly penetrative bombs, you can maybe even destroy those shelters and get rid of my aircraft. The only way to save, you know, uh, aircrafts carrying nuclear weapons is to keep them in the air. Even there, they are not safe because air-to-air -air attacks are always possible. So, uh, the submarines, but on the other hand, are more or less considered pretty safe. But people have to realize that in during the Cold War, there's an entire history of US tracking Soviet submarines at all the time. So what happened was the Soviet submarines were noisier than the American submarines. So that meant that you could, uh, so there were, there were sensors placed at the bottom of the seabed, which in deep enough sea, the, con uh, the sound gets converged to a great distance. Uh, so, for example, whenever the Soviet submarines would enter the Greenland-UK gap, Iceland-Greenland-UK gap, the noise could be detected as uh, to, to at great distance as the Caribbean islands, near the Caribbean islands. So that because the sea, if it is deep enough, it does not bounce of the, the waves do not bounce of the floor of the sea. They go in a convergent beam and get easily detected. And since the Soviet submarines, at least in the first half of the Cold War, did not have, you know, long range missiles. So they could not remain in their home waters in order to hit the U.S. homeland. So they had to come out into the Atlantic Ocean. And the moment they came out in the Atlantic Ocean, they got detected and they were being closely trailed and followed by the American submarines or the British submarines, which were technologically more advanced. So there is a whole history of, you know, even submarines being vulnerable. Over, over a period of time, I think that vulnerability got decreased because when the Soviet uh, 
submarines got uh, you know quieter so they were not uh, you know the signal gain on your sensors was not exactly the same and second the soviets developed long range missiles for after which they could remain in home waters and could target the us homeland right from there and you know penetrating another country's home water and tracking them is another like a whole different story it's a very difficult job though they have even the naval strategists of the us late cold war believed they could do that there were entire strategies and plans in which how they would go and there's there's a navy admiral who, who says that within 5 minutes we'll get rid of all those soviet submarines so i think that was a boast and exaggeration but anyway so there's a whole history about how the nuclear vulnerability so the nuclear stalemate is basically subject to technological conditions so you will always have to be in a race because these technology factors can basically kick you out of the stalemate at any moment so there's no option but you have to be in this race come always so th- these are the new scholars saying there are certain issues the satellite and the mobile uh, accuracy point is very valid and one the the nuclear optimists have to you know answer that but i think the submarines are in my opinion if you ask me submarines are still still pretty secure all right but what do you make of the philosophical level of the argument of mutually assured destruction itself that so to explain to people the uh, the mad doctrine says that if people are both sides are nuclear powers it usually tends to more peace because both know the devastating effect and the devastating power of the nuclear uh, weapon itself so beyond a point it does not matter that you know let's say the united states of america has x number of uh, nuclear warheads and pakistan has y or let, let us look at the india pakistan uh, standoff too now uh, it's not like we have the same number of nuclear warheads right we have different number of nuclear warheads both right. the nations yeah or or china and india would be a even better comparison like china has way more nuclear warheads than us but the point is beyond the point the mutually assured destruction doctrine says that it doesn't matter you know 3 is good enough or 4 are good enough or 10 are good enough to basically uh, cause enough damage to cripple a society completely which will basically be kind of gone forever and um, another interesting thing that uh, i once heard was from a pakistani uh, commentator hasan uh, i i forgot his name the second name he comes on pakistani television and says a lot of things bahut sari baatein karte hain wo basanti ke jaise mujhe sari baatein yaad nahi rehti hain magar he said something very interesting on the you know he was taunting the people who would constantly say hum atomy taakat hain atomy taakat hain bolta hai ha theek hai wo bhi to atomy taakat hain hum sirf bolte rehte hain और द पॉइंट वाज दैट यू नो हम उनको मारेंगे हाँ मगर वो हमें मारेंगे तो हमारा एक बंदा नहीं बचेगा सो हिज होल आइडिया वाज दैट ये मैड डॉक्टर काम नहीं करने वाला हम पूरे चले जाएंगे वो बच जाएंगे सो वे डू यू थिंक द ओवरऑल थियोरेटिकल कंसेंसिस इज ऑन म्यूचुअली अश्योर डिस्ट्रक्शन एक्चुअली न्यूक्लियर वेपन लीडिंग टू मोर पीस या सो so uh, so this this दिस गोज इन टू सेवरल थिंग्स बट आई ट्राई टू टाई इट अप टू द इंडिया पाकिस्तान वन so i think pakistan gets a better use so nuclear weapons are political weapons so it's not about just using them in action it's also using them in your politics and they get better use of nuclear weapons politically and there are certain reasons why they get better use so there there are certain reasons why pakistan is the only one that can get better use of it rather than us 
so which is that pakistan is a weaker country a conventionally weaker country so whenever there is a fight between conventionally weaker and a stronger country the stronger is supposed to win the war now unless this weaker one gets nuclear parity now the moment you get nuclear parity with a conventionally stronger rival now the conventionally stronger one cannot go and defeat you in a war because you can always threaten nuclear escalation so it is the stronger country which gets you know hamstrung because of the nuclear parity so it's 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 some sort of a game in which you know you had a disadvantage at a lower level but because getting a parity at the higher level now since you can jump from here to here you can get better political advantage of it and now just because the just because pakistan cannot be defeated in a conventional war because of nukes it takes advantage of that to mount you know conventional or sub conventional attacks against india and now this is basically what is called the stability instability paradox so stability at the highest level creates instability at the lower levels so there is a stability india and pakistan will not hit each other with nukes though they are capable of doing that but that would be silly nobody will do that but since they are both so confident that nobody will escalate to higher levels so niche ka game is fair game so now you can do terrorist attacks and be like even a retaliation would be small and not be big you are pretty much assured of that and that is what is called you know stability instability paradox which is a you know third uh, like it's not nuclear optimism it's not nuclear pessimism it's the third one which says there is reasons to be optimistic because there will not be a nuclear exchange and just because the actors know that there won't be a nuclear exchange they would be pretty pretty you know reckless at the at the lower levels of violence to which i should add another thing by so as paul kapoor especially uh, worked on india pakistan dyad and he says that you know if a conventionally weaker country facing a stronger rival acquires nuclear weapons and it's also simultaneously is a territorially revisionist country which pakistan is it wants kashmir back it it has certain territorial goals india is pretty much a status quoish country in territorial terms so if if a weaker country which is also territorially revisionist gets nuclear parity with its rivals it has incentives to create instability because it wa- it wants to change something now it cannot change with its conventional advantage it has nuclear parity and conventional disadvantage to work with how will it do it will do by lower levels of violence instability at lower levels got it but then kunal this this kind of takes me to a natural follow up question where then we are incentivizing more and more powers becoming nuclear then then you know then the americans uh, whether it's uh, and i'm when i say americans i mean the american establishment i don't mean the average american people i mean american people ko kya pata yaar wo to matlab establishment karti hai so it doesn't matter whether it's trump or whether it's biden administration you know they keep saying uh, north korea should not be nuclear but then swad anusar uh, biden administration wants the iran nuclear deal and trump administration does not want the iran nuclear deal but if you know the way you have explained the entire scenario with pakistan and india as a you know as a real world example but then naturally north korea would want to be nuclear to secure i am not uh, saying king jong un has some great noble cause or something 
let's not uh, you know misunderstand where i'm coming from all i'm saying is but the the nature of the beast itself that everybody would want to be nuclear so that the, you know the western hegemonic powers don't come and bug them beyond a point because what what does pakistan do today literally if you think about it every once in a while pakistan will go to america and what do they show they show bomb hai mere paas bomb hai mere paas that's all they do so so on and on the other hand you could very well come back and say that is even more reason for the americans to make sure these other people do not get bombs otherwise they will also start doing the same thing yes. so how do we solve this conundrum that's politics regularly like things solve themselves out like <laughs> but to, to to get to like so north korean regime is an interesting example so their their primary goal uh, of getting nuclear weapons is regime security you know the people in america don't like that regime and you know, they have got rid of dictators elsewhere so they can get rid of dictator in north korea as well and there have been previous attempts at uh, you know uh, getting rid of the kim dynasty so it's the mo- now the nukes are basically a regime security tool for north korea now the moment you mess with the ruling di- ruling establishment in north korea you know what can come at you right so so the primary aim is this now there are the people who say that it's not just that it's also you know basically korean unification or north korea so you know the north koreans and the south koreans both want korean unification but south koreans want it on their terms the north korean wants it on their terms so one has nukes so it might be able to dictate you know their terms more than the other but other also has an alliance with the us which has its own nukes so anyway so uh, yes so there are more and more countries would especially those countries which ha- which perceives it some threat Uh, it's not necessary that a threat is required for you to start a nuclear weapons program but in most cases you will find that there will be some threat or at least you for example pakistan uh, it's a very interesting thing almost all western academics including in some indian academics say that pakistan started a nuclear program after the 1971 war because it perceived a higher threat because india had just got in and divided the country into two and once you can do that to a some other country there was a humiliating moment for pakistan and it said it said that okay we will not have this again and so how to prevent it to go about nuclear weapon at least i don't know i have written in hindustan times explaining earlier why this is not a very convincing explanation because what happens at the end of 71 war is also that zulfikar ali bhutto comes to power and if bhutto one can trace bhutto's thoughts before 71 and he was always for nuclear weapons he tried to start a nuclear weapons program even during you know ayub khan's presidency it just that he was he couldn't so if bhutto had come to power with or without 71 war he would have started a nuclear weapons program so it's not always necessary that you feel a security threat uh, to start a nuclear weapons program but in generally many cases you do and the security perceived security threat actually helps in you know mobilizing the domestic opinion in favor of the nuclear weapons program it's not a coincidence that you know after the 1964 chinese test at lopnur so the shastri government gave a go ahead for the peaceful nuclear explosions like it started the work for peaceful nuclear explosion which which was then concluded by indira gandhi later so it's not it's not just a coincidence that once once the threat appears you begin working on that threat to counter it now as you said once the, before the before north korea got nuclear weapon there was nobody was treating it fairly 
and now whether they should be treat, treated fairly is another question but no, like they were not being treated like any any other state they are not the only dictators in the world there are other dictators which get a more, much more lavish treatment right <laughs> so that's also a fact they were they're not so and the, but the moment they got the uh, nuclear weapons and especially the icbm capability with the intercontinental ballistic missiles which can go and hit now the us base the us homeland after that you saw us president trump conducting two summits with the north korean leader which had never happened before a us president a sitting us president meeting north korean leadership in a long way so you know suddenly your bargaining power does increase you know that's what it is called you know pakistan is the one which bargains with the gun it to its own head you know we have the bomb <laughs> so uh, your bargaining power do uh, does increase once you get the bomb and that is why just because you have that in enhanced bargaining power these other states have an incentive to stop you from that getting that bargaining leverage and not just bargaining leverage you once there is a war and maybe an accident more nuclear weapons means more chances of a nuclear accident so you know uh, there there are incentives now how do we solve this we don't know it's just politics every day takes care of it maybe at the end, so maybe at some point iran will get a nuclear bomb we don't know uh, maybe uh, and if iran gets there'll be pressure there'll be pressure on saudi arabia to get it as well the i think the crown prince has already stated that if iran gets a bomb they will get one too now how will i i think it's easier for the us to stop saudi arabia than it is to stop iran but that's another matter so there'll be pressure on saudi arabia there'll be pressure on egypt uh, there'll be pressure on um, uh, turkey to get nuclear weapons and uh, once there is already there there is already a uh, increased public opinion in south korea now in uh, in some latest surveys favors of indigenous nuclear weapon in south korea in japan president abe uh, prime minister abe was pretty clear that we should think about nuclear weapons and uh, japan japanese public opinion is very against nuclear weapons for understandable reasons but there there are now american experts now writing a paper two two american uh, professors have written a paper that the only way to save us south korea alliance is for, by allowing south korea to get a nuclear bomb of its own so you know there there's a that we might be at a cusp where you know the next slot of nuclear weapons countries might begin to think about it and may emerge as nuclear weapons country we don't know but there there is a movement towards that in south korea in japan in iran obviously is very close to the bomb and once iran gets it saudi arabia egypt turkey are candidates in your paper can because this reminded me of a bit of your paper you talk about the theories of not letting pe people get the weapon and the different strategies that are used i, I think it was in the mid range or the latter half of the paper if i remember correctly in your dissertation yeah. you, you you laid down all the strategies uh, written by different scholars and and uh, uh, the effectivity or whether they are effective or not is a separate issue but can you can we actually talk about see a lot of people think ki ha kuch to karenge are magar kya karenge ye to kisi ko bhi nahi malum hai so can you maybe talk about that aspect of your paper because i remember clearly you giving a little bit of time and you know explaining the different strategies deployed by different people uh, in this very area yes uh, so um, one of the re so this is basically counter proliferation now we have moved into that domain 
So counter proliferation is basically once I am a state, and if I know that another state is starting to make nuclear weapons or is planning to, you know, maybe rush towards a bomb or maybe just keep an option open. So now I have I have to stop it. And how do I stop it? There are various ways. So broadly speaking, there are three or four ways. One is you do a military attack. The second, you do some kind of diplomacy uh, with and, you know, bargain with the other state. And the third is like maybe form a collective union and do bargaining. And the fourth is basically you do nothing. So uh, there, there have been so one of the reasons why this topic has been studied in the past uh, by a lot of scholars is because of the military attack. So it can it can lead to wars. It can lead to actual use of military force. When your rival is making nuclear weapons, you can use force to stop it. Now, this has been done in the past, particularly by the Israelis. Uh, they have uh, bombed uh, Osirak in 1981 in Iraq, that Osirak nuclear uh, plant. And then they have bombed in 2007 the Syrian plant the Syrian nuclear reactor. So they have bombed a couple of nuclear reactors. It has, so it, in peacetime, so that's significant part of those attacks. They were, they happened in peacetime. There were surprise attacks, stealth attacks. Um, US has bombed Iraqi reactors, but during the Gulf War, so it was part of the war. Uh, but again, there was something new about this war, but the hot reactors, operational reactors were attacked. So anybody who talks about, you know, current Russia-Ukraine war and, you know, uh, Russia uh, is and there's something unprecedented about attacking nuclear reactors so it's not because they, this has been done in the past and so yes so there is this military aspect so one you can you know uh, like Israelis went to, to Iraq or to Syria they just went out and destroyed the reactor you know they sent a sortie of F-16s and destroyed the reactor so that that that's one way to do it. But the good thing that the advantage they had it the, both those programs, the Iraqi program in 1981 and the Syrian program in 2007 was a very small nuclear weapons program. They were nascent programs. They were just beginning to you know take shape. In to the extent that you know in 2007 when uh, the uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, I think it was Ehud Olmert who talked to George W. Bush who said you know my the CIA cannot confirm that it is definitely a weapons program. They later revised their opinion and said yes yes it was a nuclear weapons program but at that moment it was so early that CIA could not confirm that it was a weapons program. So the, those early stage programs are easy to be hit because they're, they are just one or two reactors they, the locations are known not well protected uh, and you can get away with it like uh, by attacking a small attack can be good enough but in a later stage when you have to react seven reactors in different parts of the country you're basically declaring a war <laughs> so there'll be a war's reply will be a war so the so military options are pursued but they're generally pursued at an early stage uh, as we have seen now, people will say that they have been also pursued at the later stage. Yes, they have been considered at a later stage, but they have not been pursued. For example, when the Chinese were very close to the bomb in 1963 and 64, the Americans pursued, like considered the attacking the Chinese reactors, but they did not go ahead with the, pro with the plan. The idea, in the end, the President uh, 
Lyndon Johnson decided that if for some other reason we happen to be fighting a war with China or some conflict, we can take opportunistic advantage of that conflict to mount this attack on these reactors. But we cannot do it, you know, something which is specially, specially for these reactors, also because the Chinese nuclear facilities were deep inland into the Chinese uh, uh, territory. And once you do a deep strikes, it's always dangerous. Plus, the Soviets could have been threatened that it's directed at them. Um, so uh, the Soviets were not on board with attacking Chinese nuclear program then. So, um, so military attacks get considered at a later stage, but they have never been executed. But there is an advantage to even considering a military attack in later stages, which is for bargaining purpose. It's once you threaten, for example, there is a like by if Joe Biden has been asked that you will will you do a nuclear attack uh, sorry will you will you attack Iranian nuclear facilities if there is no deal, and he hasn't ruled it out. He doesn't say that I won't do it because that's useful. That threat of attack is useful bargaining tool. That will always keep the Iranians at toes, and they know that you know the cost of not coming to the table and negotiating a deal in good faith is that. There is always a chance, maybe remote, but there is always a chance that an attack could happen on Iranian nuclear facilities. And once that happens, they will have to basically start from zero. If if the if the, the program gets completely destroyed, they have to at least physically start from zero, even though the know-how and technology and personnel will be there. So uh, so they they are aware of that. So it's it's useful as bargaining. It's also useful for third party. For example, let's say. Let's say India wants Iranian oil and it's not cooperating with the US, but for now it is cooperating. But let's imagine a hypothetical scenario. It's if it's not cooperating with the uh, with the US on uh, imposing sanctions on Iranian oil, then maybe you know the threat of attack on Iran and a destabilization in the Middle East will put will you know uh, skyrocket the oil prices and then India will be on board. Okay, fine. I'll cooperate with the sanctions because they are less less costly to me than you know a destabilization in the Middle East and my current account deficit going completely bonkers. So the threat. So this this is how we think about military attacks in counter proliferation. You either do it at early stage, when you do it as a surprise attack, or you do it at a later stage. But that's mostly consideration and using it as a threat in bargaining. Um, then the second thing is you can do some kind of diplomacy. You know, now diplomacy uh, tends to not understand, like people don't understand what is diplomacy properly. So they think people coming around and talking is diplomacy. That is not diplomacy. You'll have, you have to have some leverage over your other partner. You should threaten if you, if you don't do this, I'll do that, right? That should be back at the back of any diplomatic, you know, uh, negotiation. So one, one way for uh, a new nuclear power is making a nuke because it perceives a security threat. So what you can offer it is to reduce the security threat. And how you can do is by offering an alliance. So the US, for example, offered an alliance to um, France and West Germany in order to stop them from making nuclear weapons. Same for South Korea, for uh, uh, Australia. So they have this, you know, Offering an alliance in order to stop them from nu making nuclear weapons is one way to do it. By you reduce their security threat. Their demand for nuclear weapons will go down once their security threat is reduced. Another is, okay, you don't want to provide, uh, you know, um, alliance uh, because that's also costly. You have, to, you have to come to their defense and all that. 
so what if you if you are a very like big trade partner if you give them don if you are a donor if you supply them military weapons so you can use that leverage for example the russians use that leverage with uh, soviets use that leverage with romania in order to stop it the soviets use that leverage even with north korea so the soviet union tried to stop north korea's nuclear weapons in 1980s and 90s so it had that leverage it tried to it tried to stop egypt it tried to stop libya so there is a whole host of you know counter proliferation not just by the us but also by the soviet union uh so you use that leverage sometimes that threatening of leverage is not enough so you need to apply that sanctions beforehand which is what is happening with iran right now there is a multilateral coalition of the us germany france uk china and russia who are now applying these sanctions and then that uh, so the punishment is imposed first and then you negotiate so that you know now you give up your nuclear weapon uh, program and then we will remove the sanction that's another way of you know conducting diplomacy itself though it's like closer to you know punitive diplomacy and uh, finally you can you may not be able to do something about it maybe you don't have the power you don't have the power to strike militarily you don't have the power to apply sanctions then what do you do you find someone else who can do this for example when the taiwanese were worried that the chinese china is making nuclear weapons so the taiwanese basically informed it to the us and they, they tried to when the us was uh, planning considering their attack the taiwanese wanted to support those attack programs you know they were ready to send a militia of taiwanese um, forces which could land and you know create disruption in the nuclear facilities and those plans were already were in place when they were executed so so that is something if you don't can't do it yourself you find someone who can do it so that's one option and the final option is you do nothing you do nothing because you're not interested in doing anything for example you uh, like if if the uh, if the argentinians are making nuclear weapons the south koreans are not interested in it so they'll do nothing or maybe they can't do anything you know for example if india is making nukes sri lanka cannot do anything about it so that's that's another reason why people will not do it so there's a broad variety from doing nothing to executing military attack states have chosen different strategies along this spectrum and that's what my dissertation tries to explain that when do states choose which strategy but then what are uh, you know like obviously different states are going to use different strategies but in in the literature itself actually and this is something i could not understand from the paper maybe it's my mistake is like is there a more preferred strategy yeah uh, so again it depends on um, where you are like how much threat do you perceive as a result of the you know your rival acquiring nuclear weapons so the, for 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 let's consider the iran example if iran gets a nuclear bomb it considered a big threat in israel is because you know the ayatollah khomeini has said that iran is a cancerous tumor which has to be eliminated <laughs> from the face of the earth that is what ayatollah khomeini has said and that will take minute uh, just to he wants to eliminate himself oh so israel israel, israel yeah because i was like yaar uh, iran ko irani kyu udana chahta hai so khomeini said israel is a cancerous tumor which has to be eliminated so okay. if if iran gets a nuclear weapon that means it's a huge threat to israel right now the threat because the threat is huge you will be willing to take take riskier methods to stop it when the threat as a result of your rival acquiring nukes is huge 
it gives it. So for a, uh, actually not just the, th the change of threat. For example, if India India before acquiring nuclear weapons could eliminate Bhutan of the map and it could eliminate after acquiring nuclear weapons. So for in substantive terms, nothing changes for Bhutan as a result of nuclear weapons with, in India's hand. So it will not have any incentive to you know stop India's nuclear weapons. But for Pakistan, it's different. It the things some somewhat change more than Bhutan. So it's the motivation of stopping. The, what motivation you have to stop your rival from getting to the bomb depends on the change in the threat level as your rival before and after your rival acquires the bomb. So, uh, for, for example, so I've tried to, you know, measure this um, change in threat. So one is like, if you think there is an existential threat from the country acquiring nuclear weapons. So if Iran says that, you know, I will eliminate you of your face of, from the face of the earth, then there is an existential threat. And it's not just they're saying it. Israel is a territorially a very small country, which actually can be eliminated in a in a one full go strike of nuclear weapons. So, you know, that so Israel can fight conventional wars. They're very good, uh, you know, militarily advanced, scientifically advanced countries. So they can fight good conventional wars, but they cannot fight a nuclear war. In fact, they cannot fight it at all because they, they just don't have the geographical depth for it. Uh, like, for example, com compare some compared to Mao. Mao once said to Nehru that, you know, even if nuclear weapons are used, India, uh, like three, the remaining 300 million Chinese will make a glorious empire or something like that. <laughs> so that is not something which, uh, which uh, Israeli leader can say. So the same goes for Taiwan. Again, geographically small, so it can be eliminated from the face of the earth by, uh, it at least thought Mao could be that reckless and, you know, could do that. So, uh, it depends on the threat. So first is facing existential threat. Second, if, if your rival, which is acquiring nuclear weapons, has a territorial dispute with you. Now, nuclear weapons in its in themselves are not very useful at acquiring territory. Uh, you can, nuclear weapons are too blunt an instrument to use. The tanks are better to, to, to go and acquire territory. But, new, but what nuclear weapons can do is, you know, you if you can use your conventional might, or you can use surprise or whatever other tools that you have to acquire a territory, then the nuclear weapons can be used to preserve those gains. That was basically the Kargil war. So once India and Pakistan got, both got nuclear weapons, the Musharraf tried to get some chunk of the Kargil territory. And the idea was that now nuclear parity means that we will get to keep it. And the international community will descend upon both countries that, okay, okay, let them keep it because you both are nuclear. We cannot allow this. That was the calculation in the Kargil war. It failed is another matter, but sometimes it doesn't fail. For example, Russia's invasion of Crimea is something similar, though Ukraine doesn't have nukes, but that's how, that's why it also worked very well because it could use its conventional might to capture Crimea. And then basically it gets frozen. Crimea is basically, for good or bad reasons, is it with Russia today. So, uh, you know, you so you cannot use your nukes for acquiring territory, but you can use it to preserve it. Now, anybody who tries to, you know, overthrow the Russians from, the, from Crimea will have to consider Russian nukes. 
it's not easy that now even the us will not support ukraine in you know doing that you know throwing russians out of crimea or or throwing the chinese out of you know some uh, islands in south china sea right so that that becomes important because the chinese news or the russian news will come into play and the third is you know basically if if two countries are you know uh, rivals in a particular sphere of influence they have overlapping sphere of influence then again nukes become important for example my go to example to explain this is 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 the um, uh, the persian gulf you know if if the strait of hormuz is is blocked uh, is blocked by by iran iran and it uh, it does not allow oil transit in order as a bargaining leverage then uh, there there are research papers on how easily and quickly or slowly can the us remove that blockade and they have people have found that it's not easy even though eventually the us will be able to eliminate the blockade it won't be short and a simple operation now imagine how the complexity of that operation will increase if the iran gets nuclear it's not it's not just now now the now they can hold a critical oil route at risk by blockading it and removal of that blockade will be multifold complex and maybe nobody might even dare to do it if iran's iranians have nuclear weapons that can reach other all parts of the earth so that uh, that becomes more complex and finally superpowers have this concern that we have to limit the number of nuclear weapons in the club because if one gets it the other will get it and then the other will get it and then the other will get it because now the iranians get it saudi arabia will have feel a threat it will get it when someone will feel a threat from saudi arabia it will get it and so on and so on so there there is a domino effect so basically these are the four reasons which contribute you know motivation for stopping so the higher the motivation if you feel an existential threat you will be willing to take riskier moves but if you only have you know domino threat then you'll say okay no that's uh, that's that's not much of a concern okay we'll try to stop it but not you know we'll just use diplomacy rather than going military but if you feel uh, feel you feel threatened by three uh, like either existential threat or many of these parameters on this one then you'll feel higher threat and maybe you'll consider in you know, riskier riskier moves like military attacks you know what i find very interesting and before this will be my last question before i start taking viewers questions also because i want to give some time there are five or seven questions already that i have to ask so you know something that has always bothered me as a humble student of philosophy even when it comes to these nuclear discussions military discussions you know it is almost considered as if every country or every nation has an equal right to have or become a nuclear power because there is no moral standard that we judge nations by it is very interesting especially with this uh, with this wave of moral relativism that has engulfed the west itself mm-hmm. internally internally the west is going through a very absurdist sort of a relativistic mindset now the american state is very different till now the american state is still very hawkish it is very interfering whether people like it or not which is good and bad depending on which side of the aisle you are i mean it, let's be very clear but we should not forget that you know all society like i i have no shame in saying this again these are my views these are not kunal's views so please don't attribute it to them uh, to him and uh, i believe societies are good and bad objectively 
some like i believe india as a society is objectively better than pakistan i i have no shame in saying that also objectively better than pakistan if we compare mano a mano indians with pakistanis also in in qualitative parameters set based on human flourishing <laughs> pakistan doesn't deserve a nuclear weapon more than india deserves a nuclear weapon because india will be more responsible with it pakistan will be more irresponsible with it that's my point why has this not been of late not even a consideration in nuclear counter proliferation or non proliferation or whatever i don't think it hasn't been it has been actually so but you know what happens so one way to you know so i'll not go into philosophically which people are better and which people are worse because i don't have an expertise on that uh, but there is something about regime type people think that okay a democracy might be more responsible with nuclear weapons than a, a autocracy and that sometimes becomes you know the why we need to stop iran is because it is some kind of a hardline regime so that is that is one argument that's very popular in the us why do you want to stop north korea is because it's a dictatorship it's a very close dictatorship it's a totalitarian regime we need to stop it so that those kind of arguments do get the play what happens in nuclear weapons is like at the end it boils down to power because no matter how moral do you think you are like the us americans might think they are very much moral compared to iranians or north koreans if the north koreans have still got it they have got it you tried you couldn't stop that's that's the end of matter now obviously there is there is the americans are still to accept a new north korean bomb but it's the, it exists it's, it does not mean that just because you don't accept it it will vanish so yeah uh, the moral arguments do get you know especially in these terms you know dictatorship versus democracy the regime type arguments do get marshaled in order to stop and there's also a theory about you know like uh, the counter proliferation attacks are more common against you know uh, autocratic regimes rather than democratic regimes now this is the problem with these arguments in general are also what is called you know um, reverse causality in 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 social sciences so some it's maybe it's because the autocratic it's the democratic regimes are also in the developed part of the world they don't face territorial threat they don't face nasty neighbors they don't face all those things you know so they they're secure they don't want nuclear weapons they have nuclear umbrella by the us and all that now it is the bad part of the world which has all these security threats territorial threats unsettled disputes which wants nuclear weapons so this also happens to be the non uh, pri primarily the non democratic part of the world you know but so uh, it's it's also it's not just like you you have to stop uh, these regimes because these are bad regimes these are bad regimes also because of the security threat they face so there is also the people people say for example there is an argument in international relations that democracies don't go to war with each other it is called democratic peace theory or something so it's it's an empirical yeah, reality is there a book bhi thi is there a book bhi thi uh, there are many books many papers this this is a well trodden literature many people have written about you know uh, how democracy so this is an empirical reality very rarely have democracies gone to war 
but democracies do go to war with other countries but not with other democracies so that's an empirical puzzle and people have come up with their own theories but some of these theories belong to very liberal you know uh, schools of thought in which they believe that you know democracies value rule of law the when they see that the other state also values rule of law and then they don't do nasty things to each other now one may be but i am not convinced of this because i also believe that you are democracy in the first place because you are secure you know uh, it's it just happens to be that democracies don't fight each other because they are already secure you know there were previous colonial regimes they have satisfied all their wealth and territorial uh, desires that they had and now they have happily turned into democracies secure and preaching others <laughs> about the value of democracy and human rights and everything but it's because in the rest of the world it's those things which got settled 300 years back in in europe are still being settled and that's why they are still not democracies so it's 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 to say that democracy democracies are peaceful is also to hide the reverse causality that peaceful societies become democracies yeah so again so there are moral uh, aspects to to nuclear weapons uh, they get marshaled out but we also know what it is you know these moral arguments get weaponized it's not just because you americans maybe americans also feel that they are morally superior to iranians or north koreans or whatever but at least in the policy domain a lot of people also weaponize this morality argument in order to get their desired policy objectives Mm-hmm. some people de- just want to throw the iranian regime and that's about it and they will use any argument morality or otherwise to achieve that mhm mhm i get it i get it yeah it's 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 just something that has always fascinated me in this line like look i i unfortunately am a very limited uh, knowledge in this uh, field i just look at these things and i listen to commentary that's all i can do i can read books and listen to commentary and the the bit on democracy is very real that uh, wo as the adage goes saw chuhe khakar billi haj ko chali wo wo kahawat is pe puri fit baithti hai ki aapne pure duniya ke upar kar liya uske baad aapne realize ki hai ye to bahut galat tha you know this is aur iska ek aur bahut bada example aajkal north america mein ye bada fashion chalu hai meko bahut hansi aati hai jab bhi dekhta hu jaoge na kidhar bade corporate office mein ya university mein we would like to first acknowledge that this organization was built on the land owned by this tribe this tribe this tribe this tribe this tribe aise ekdam aankhon mein ekdam wo emotional bollywood ke scene ki emotion la ke karte hain then i i only want to ask them this question land wapas dene wale hai kya to fir paka kyon raha mostly like i would have like i would appreciate the sentiment if it was genuine but i mean it is not all performance yeah it's all performative it is all you know i i am so nice i am so kind i want to self flagellate i want to self flagellate they don't give a damn like i was i can't take the name there was a professor here and uh, a doctor here both of them gave me the same answer they said every meeting that we have now starts with this and i'm just sitting over there because you know this person has come from india or another person has come from another country that was basically pulverized by the west they are sitting there are maine to kuch kiya hi nahi 
मुझे क्यों बोल रहे हो ये करने को होल पॉइंट वाज आई एम माय सेल्फ कॉलोनाइज्ड ओरिजिनली बाय यू पीपल व्हाई आर यू मेकिंग मी से दिस आई हैव नथिंग टू से सो या आई आई अंडरस्टैंड वेयर यू आर कमिंग फ्रॉम एंड आई टोटली रिलेट टू इट बट नाउ लेट अस स्टार्ट टेकिंग क्वेश्चंस क्योंकि काफी क्वेश्चंस हैं सो आई विल स्टार्ट फर्स्ट विद दिस थोड़ा लंबा क्वेश्चन है सो बेयर विद मी समवन हैज आस्क्ड आस्क्ड कुनाल how does he see the nuclear deterrent between india and pakistan post balakot that is the first half of the question also people don't ask questions about nuclear deterrence between india and china wherein a lot of ia generals have voiced giving away its nfu vis-a-vis china where pla manages to capture huge amounts of indian territory in case of long term conflict in the himalayas yeah so let me do the balakot one uh, first so uh so something happened right in balakot we don't know what was hit something was hit i don't know maybe it some nothing was hit most probably nothing substantial was hit and the next day our plane got downed uh, a pilot was captured it i as an operation i wouldn't term it successful however something happened we we did something new which was to put ordinance on undisputed pakistani territory in that there was a message despite this overall which i would call failure of the overall operation despite the failure a message was sent that next time there is a big terrorist attack we will be willing to do draw new lines the line earlier was okay you do something in pakistan occupied kashmir but now you went to khyber pakhtunkhwa and dropped ordinance it may not have hit the desired building but wherever it hit it it was dropped on an undisputed territory so a new line was drawn the old lines were erased so now the message is that if there is a major terrorist attack next this might happen again and you remember like i think 26th of february 27th of february and afterwards were very tense periods in south subcontinent and yeah jung ho sakti hai was what i i was in delhi jung ho sakti hai, and i saw very nervous faces you know in especially in, in the news room <laughs> so once the once you begin to threaten that any major terrorist incidents may jung ho sakti hai then you have escalated that means you have sent a new message earlier was ki when major terrorist attack hoga to we will send you a dozier now that has been changed i do think the operation was a failure but a message i think was sent a new line was drawn that next time you do that now whether it is effective or not I don't know. Maybe the Pakistani military decides that, yeah, this is what I sent one message. Next time they won't do something like that. It's not always. Last time they also found out that their operation failed, and they also were th- uh, not very, you know, comfortable with the idea of jung ho sakti hai. And that, and they may, they might be right in drawing that lesson. Who knows? Next time. So you know, there are different lessons that the Pakistanis can draw from the message we sent. It depends on which one they draw. uh the second question is about china and no, no first use right so the no first use is a very you know uh, very much debated topic i don't know for what reason you know no first use is are three words written on a piece of paper the moment the chinese threaten uh, like enter for example threaten siliguri corridor and 
a hack of our northeast from the rest of the country or something like that something on the bigger scale the paper gets thrown out of the window all bets are off yeah so i don't understand why do we talk so much about the three words written on a piece of paper it's a it's a stated doctrine nobody in the world follows stated doctrine tell me one country which writes and does the same thing says and does the same thing nobody does it so i don't know why we keep you know talking about so much about why no first use so i just don't get the whole point about this i totally agree with you it is like the americans telling the world we will give you freedom and democracy as we bomb the living daylights out of you that that's what that's what it's all about it's good to you know keep saying that we will have no first use while do what you want when you when the time comes for it yeah yeah so pretend to be something else but in inside you can be jagira like jagira was china gate that, that's what it is all right so this question i don't know if you want to answer it or not because i think ye indians ki ye dukhti rag hai iske liye main question to puch raha hu how can a state sponsor of terror like pakistan continue to enjoy in courts chhatrachhaya of dc establishment especially the pentagon and the think tank community how come someone like khalid kidwe gets invited to address major conferences i will add to this where have we as a society failed in our efforts to pin this yes i i keep thinking about this topic but i don't know if i have an answer <laughs> so let me Nobody just does. think aloud <laughs> think aloud rather than you know uh, give a definitive answer because i don't have so uh, i guess some some part of it is history how cold war cold unfolded uh, pakistanis were an alliance partner in mid 1950s they became an alliance partner of the us we did not we went in the we were we were non aligned but you know more or less aligned with the soviet union so that that part is history uh pakistanis enjoy a great geographical space uh they for example if you want to go to afghanistan there are very few routes from which the us can logistically reach there you know send material uh, drones or whatever so they uh, either they use iran with which they can't have a good relationship us or they use russia again which they can't have good relations with or they use some central asian countries to on which you know either the russians or now the chinese have good influence so you know the pakistan and pakistan the good and the thing about pakistan is at the right price they agree to everything and that's business minded which is <laughs> so if if you promise them an imf loan or something like that for the us you know flexing some muscles in the imf is not so difficult it's not such a big deal so you can get a loan for the pakistanis passed in the imf and you can get your logistics sent to the afghanistan for example if you want to kill a terrorist do a drone operation whatever so in that sense pakistan has a great geographical it lies at a great geographical space and it take and it knows how to make use of that it got nuclear weapons again it knows how to make political use of that where have we failed uh, i think there is a lot of complacency in india that hum to hamara ho jayega like we will be fine and uh, and that shows you know then uh, I'll, I'll, and now th- there are certain aspects of it which i would rather talk offline about <laughs> but uh, but there are there, there are uh, we we as a society haven't really grappled with 
this problem. And for the record, even I don't say half the things that I hear. I mean, because you host a platform, you are privileged to many things and you get to know many things. Obviously, you're not supposed to say half the things. That, in fact, half of the times, you know, people like you or I don't say things because it harms India more than it benefits yeah. India. So why would we want to harm our own country? So, yeah, so I, I agree with you. And I, I and I 100% support you in not answering this beyond a certain point in detail. Mm-hmm. I, I totally support you. And I appreciate it that Puri Dhulai Ni Kar So I appreciate that. So I totally get it. Now, obviously, dekho, I, I, don't blame me, magar abhi Indian podcast is Sare question Pakistan ke upar hi hai. So I don't know what to do. Okay. Sare question Pakistan ke upar aare. Because nuclear Pakistan logo ko tension hoti hai. All right. So this use, this viewer has asked, Pakistan often claims that they'll use, in quotes, tactical nukes in an event on invasion from India, hitting, hinting that it would not cause major damage, but they are open to uses. How do you see it? Um... Yes, so uh, I think you, uh, so. Uh, so tactical nukes are basically battlefield nukes. So whenever they get to the scenario in which it is envisioned that they will be used, is the one in which, for example, something like a cold start doctrine that the Indian Army has or doesn't have. We are fuzzy about it a little. Um, so, for example, let's say there is a major terrorist attack. There is some, you know, some Indian Army troops go into the Pakistani border, do an operation with limited or somewhat ambitious goals, whatever they are. And then, if the Pakistanis threat, uh, feel threatened, they use tactical nuclear weapons on on our uh, on their own soil against our troops. Now, this is one one. This is fantastic to use nukes on your own soil. That's that's not that's not a very good thing to do. Not a very credible threat. You know, you will be affected with your own radiation. Now, obviously, that there, the India and Pakistan are joint. There are rivers that flow from one place to other. Wind that blows from so the radiation will always come back to India and all that. But you know, this whole thing about um, attacking Indian troops on Pakistani soil is not very credible. But, you know, madman, people can do silly, like, do. so one of the things, you know, the Indian nuclear doctrine says that we, whether you attack with us, with a midget nuke or the f- bigger nuke, we will attack you back with the bigger nuke. So there is no middle rung in our own doctrine. Whether you amend the doctrine or not, I think it's valuable to think about in gradations. Should, a, should the reply of a tactical nuclear weapon definitely be a massive retaliation? So massive, in fact, compared to the no first use, I find the massive retaliation a bigger problem in our doctrine because that's also not very credible. So if 50 of your troops die in a tactical nuclear attack on Pakistani soil, will you destroy Karachi and Lahore for that? Doesn't sound credible to me. And then that means you need to think it in gradation terms. Maybe if tactical nukes are used on your troops on their soil, maybe you just need to go and destroy the Pakistani army headquarters in an attack. That's it. And not do a, you know, destroy Lahore and Karachi. So I think there is value in thinking in gradation terms. I don't know if someone inside the Indian establishment already does that. In case, then uh, that's good. But if they don't think, I think there's value in thinking about it. 
in the series of Pakistan questions, here's one more. Pakistan is becoming very unstable day by day, both politically and economically. In the event that the country breaks up, what will happen to its nuclear weapons? Sare Indians ko Pakistan ki tension hai. Baad, baju hai, itna bada chin betha hai, Indians ko nahi padi hai. Or hamara pura focus Pakistan ke upar hota hai. So again, uh, I, I, I think the Prime Minister's office, Defence Ministry, Home Ministry should have a doc document of planning that in case Pakistan breaks up or in case there is a danger of nuclear terrorism or whatever in Pakistan, we should have a document which says exactly what we will do. I doubt that we have it. I am more sure that the Pentagon has something like that. In case Pakistan breaks up, in case there are there are dangers of you know Al Qaeda or Lashkar e Toiba or whatever uh, getting nukes or whatever in some kind of instability in Pakistan, I guess Department of Defense in the U.S. has a document which lays out what will they do. It's not a very easy scenario. You'll have to think through a lot. It's not something that I can right now tell ki ye kar denge. Not, it, you have to think through all the scenarios. What, what are your assets on the ground? What can you do? What assets can you mobilize quickly? I think that should have been done. And the, there already should be a detailed document on, you know, point number one, activate this. Point number two, activate. I doubt we have it. But if not, we should do it right away. But don't you think it says a lot about us also that we just... We just don't have the intellectual exercises that we should. We are a low state capacity country. So we, we try to firefight every day jo naya problem yeah, it's, 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 it's terrible. It's terrible and it's heartbreaking. Well, finally, one question which has nothing to do with Pakistan. How do you see the nuclear deterrent playing out in the case of Israel and North Korea as well? I mean, Israel... I didn't get the connection of this question. Like uh, Israel's Israel is an old nuclear power, North Korea. No, but in the uh, let's say North Korea. So, what do you think is going to happen in the North Korean case? Uh, the West is trying its best to deal with North Korea. See, I don't understand. You know, as as crazy as it sounds, I think Donald Trump actually tried to do something about it. Uh, in his own weird way, he called him Rocket Man, which is... I don't get it. I don't get why Donald Trump did the way... Uh, do you think a lot of times people were kind of worried because of Trump and his mercurial character? Do you think that had a role to play? kind of a scenario? I think there is some of that in, uh, in American... Or the American public, especially the public I meet, you know, the, I'm in Boston, Cambridge. It's a very blue you know, campus and anyway, the city. So I, whatever I see is a lot of you just, there's just sheer embarrassment president There's a lot of embarrassment among people that we made this guy the president. And, and all lot of that just flows from that sentiment. And sometimes I feel that's harmful because, you know, there's... Like, you may find the person distasteful, but you can still do an analytical exercise about unsentimentally. But somehow that is easier said than done. People find it very difficult to keep the personality aside and do an unsentimental analysis of Trump's foreign policy. And the sentiment, like everything, like if it is said by 
I have seen professors and everybody, you know, talk about even if they have to praise Trump, they will first like ten or like three or four lines about how Trump is bad and everything. But now this policy was good. And now, so if 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 all his policies were flawed, why are some of them being many of them being continued by Biden administration? So, in so you know, so I think that Rocket Man and all that was very silly and stupid. But the later, you know, I. Think the summits failed, but at least that was a start. When the Chinese were getting nuclear weapons in 1960s, the debate in America was very similar. That you know, this is Mao, this is crazy, this is you know, we cannot allow China to get this because they are irrational. They are not the same people. Mao is definitely not sane and all that. But look what happened over time. China got normalized. Now the U.S. and China live in a some some sort of a nuclear stalemate, whether you call it mutually assured destruction or not. But they accept each other's nuke. They recognize the risk. They take, and both of, in whether we like Indians like China or not, but China has more or less handled its nuclear weapons very responsibly so far. So uh, it if you give a chance, this and not just giving a chance. It's it's just it is the only probably the only option left with the US. You have to enter into a mutual deterrence with North Korea. The, because the alternative is military attack, which can, you know, maybe eliminate millions of people, which is which is not something anybody would recommend. <laughs> so uh, I guess we uh, the US ultimately should and I may, may have to, you know, give nuclear mutual deterrence a chance with North Korea and that I think the summit with Trump may have led to that direction if there was not so much so right now the I think that the biggest thing that hampers American diplomacy is the polarization at the domestic level now the Biden cannot enter into this uh, Iranian deal because he cannot accept certain terms which for which he will be roasted back by the Republicans here right like he, there are there they, for there is nothing that the U.S. can do concede anything, and it depends. It it's not about Biden or Trump. Anybody who is in power, because the polarization is so high, that consensus that one state and society should have for things outside its border just does not exist in America, and therefore no president can make any deal on which they can get roasted back here, and that that really is hampering hampering American diplomacy. Yeah, just one last question. And I can, uh, I guess, you know, this will be uh, my closing question and we can wrap it up, I guess, after that, because uh, we're almost at an hour and 20 minutes. How much, you know, because we, uh, it's all about counter-proliferation or non-proliferation uh, and different, uh, different uh, strategies around them. How much of America's, internal societal struggle you know we we live in the era of uh, you know basically american society being like the jagat policemen whether we like it or not they are i mean i know people don't like to accept it but they are they are the world policemen now in this era of american society going through i don't know what word am i supposed to use with it they are going through an internal crisis right now america as a society is trying to grapple with its past in a very self-flagellating way, and it is sending mixed signals to their old allies. In that situation, do you think more Western powers also now trying to become 
independently nuclear considering how trump said like trump's uh, remarks on nato were very interesting they're not pulling their weight that's what he said right famously trump said that they need to contribute more and then with the biden administration taking a u turn on that but the biden administration going full on self flagellating internally inside their own society like how the french look at america now you know the french are very clear oh we don't want this american social science culture coming into our society but at the end of the day social sciences do influence policy making because they have a disproportionate influence on policy making so how much of these internal struggles in america are going to have different countries now again looking at nuclear power as an option uh, i i don't know if it it will really translate to nuclear power because let let's talk about western europe for example so there is a war right now going in ukraine uh, ukraine versus russia and there was this there was this hope you know even the war does not it is not hopeful on most counts but there was this hope that once there is once the russian tanks are inside the ukrainian territory and beyond donbas maybe maybe the europeans will finally begin to spend on their own defense now we will see whether they do it or not but if you look at the all the aid that is flowing to ukraine it's mostly from the us that should not be the concern of the us and there is a there is a Uh, there is some some you know uh, section of academia here which wants to say that which wants to say that it's none of america's business to protect ukraine right if at all if it is someone's business then the western europe should fund that should should give that aid and they should take it their own because we have other challenges in china so there is one group of people who think that you know we uh, america should prioritize against china so spending on ukraine is wasteful because any dollar spent there is less a dollar spent less on china friend then there is a second group of people who thinks no we want we don't want the global policeman role at all we want to come back from the europe and we want to come back from asia we don't have any business protecting either ukraine or taiwan that's also whether we like it or not that is also a principled stand now the problematic part is the third kind of people who want to spend it on ukraine but not on taiwan now this is this i have been trying to understand why maybe because russia is an easier target and you can do it <laughs> and the chinese are so that's a very practical thinking which is also okay but <laughs> but it has, carries its own then and but there also you know there have been instances when uh, for example a professor who was trying to ask this question what is our big stake in ukraine that we we are giving so much aid and he was attacked so much that he had to leave twitter for that so you know that how can you even ask that when putin uh, who is a clearly a megalomaniac is attacking a democratic country how can you ask that we don't support a democracy now that moral questioning in international relations more uh, we try to keep away from these kind of moral questioning not because we are immoral people but because we could for a for a better view distance ourselves from these concerns and then uh, and analyze things unsentimentally but some of that has now the boundaries have fused everything is being looked at in good and evil terms for some people not all i should not paint everybody with the same brush problem is the people who feel like that professor who was kicked out either get kicked out or they stop speaking 
so there is this this issue that america's domestic crisis internal you know fracturing of you know the conversation has stopped i was uh, yesterday looking at an example uh, this might be a digression i was yesterday looking at a video in which sashi tharoor and harsh madhusudan were debating with rajdeep sardesai and you know the my my thought and i don't agree with either of those views but that's another matter the point is that such a debate i don't think is even possible in america today hmm. the conversation has stopped and if you think you are not on the right side you either keep quiet or you go to the darker side which to be honest the right trump is is very dark sometimes the kind of stuff that speak about is just unbelievably bad <laughs> like like defending uh, like defending gun laws when children get killed is just morally unconscious like what can we so anyway so the internal crisis is just affecting american foreign policy in weird ways and i think the worst way in which this is affecting is the way if we we are not even seeing because people have stopped speaking people have stopped asking those questions criticizing which they used to do there's also the sense that if we criticize biden too much it will empower trump back it or something like now i guess desantis or who, the florida governor whatever so the point but that should never be the concern of an academic like our job is not to put our favorite people in presidential palace or you know prime minister's office it's our job to analyze things as unsentimentally as we can but yep. we are not in that world <laughs> i i agree with you we are not in that world and it's uh, it's just a damn shame and as they say the truth is the victim the truth yes. dies uh, a million deaths daily uh, under this rubric of uh, tribalism hyper mobilized through social media idiocy i don't know what to do like uh, i'm kind of now a, a past master at uh, pissing so many people off that uh, i have kind of uh, run out of people to piss off to now so yeah, same what you, yeah what do you do i mean uh, you're not going to you know you're not going to if if you if you only care about the truth and it doesn't matter where it falls you're never going to make people happy it is what it is but you know what i guess this is a perfect way to end the podcast uh, so now once <laughs> yeah yeah kunal thanks thanks a lot for coming i wish you all the best in uh, in all your future endeavors and uh, looking forward to uh, many many more conversations with you in the future uh, seeking the truth like we did this time thank you thank you for having me it was fun and uh, thanks for everybody who pitched in with questions which those were great thank you All right guys we'll wrap today's discussion up once again in the description of the podcast you will see Kunal's Twitter handle please go and follow him on Twitter uh if you want to support me well you know the drill you can subscribe to the channel you can like this video you can leave your comments over there if you have more questions of Kunal i guess you can take uh, whatever you have heard over here you can tweet the questions out to Kunal i'm sure he'll be more than happy to uh, answer them on social media if you want to support me you know the drill you can support me on youtube by becoming a member or a subscriber on patreon or buying the charbak podcast merch or by sending your donations through upi i will see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye